to see you this morning. And uh, Matt and Pastor, uh, Pastor Matt and worship team, thank you for helping us thank the Lord for who he is. And uh, as we go through this week today in the text that we're going to be looking at, I pray that that what we've talked about today and going into Christmas in this busy season that we're about to encounter. It's a lot of fun. It's a great time. It's also busy. And sometimes our walk with the Lord actually can take a little bit of a dip, even though there's such a, such a focus on giving thanks to Jesus and, and then thinking of his incarnation and coming to this earth. We're going to talk about pressing in to knowing Jesus and knowing the heart of God. And uh, so that's where we're going to be today. And thank you for guys for helping us uh, remember where our thanks is due. And that's giving it to Jesus. Well, good to see you all, the survivors of the Grand Junction Plague. And uh, yeah, some new ways of greeting today. The bump on the elbow. So we can do that. We all have permission not to touch hands, right? But then somebody said, yeah, but the elbow, that's where you cough. That's the, the new cough, right? And so I guess we'll just do this to each other, and that's sufficient, all right? So if you get a head nod from me, it's no offense. I'm just saying hi, and that's going to be the way we're going to say hi, right? So we're continuing on in the book of Philippians, and uh, we are now going to be into chapter 3, well into that. Last week, Matt took us at the beginning portion of that. And we've been making our way through, we're coming to the conclusion of it. We have two more weeks after today. Next week, uh, one of our elders, David Edwards, is going to uh, take us through uh, the beginning of chapter four and uh, lead us through that. So I look forward to, to that next week. Last week, Pastor Matt started Philippians chapter three. And in this, we discovered what it looked like to live in our identity in Christ. All of chapter three flows with one basic thought all the way through it. There's a continuation of thought. It's not as if all of a sudden there's a section break and a whole new thought emerges, but it goes together. The theme goes together. And uh, we'll look at that in just a moment of how that continues through. Could we pray one more time? Because we're about to open up God's word. Let's just pray that God would speak to us through it. Father, as we open up this book that we call the Bible, these very words from you, uh, Father, we do so with reverence because they're your words spoken through people, but your words given to us. And uh, Father, we want to treat those with the, the respect they're due. We want to come to it with a submission in our own hearts. So Lord, begin to do that and soften us to what your word will say. And Lord, we just pray that it would speak powerfully to us today, that it would draw us to Jesus, that the cross would be magnified, that Jesus would be magnified. And Lord, that you would be the center of everything we do this morning in the word here. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul started chapter 3 with a phrase or a line that was a theme that has gone all through the book of Philippians. And we've mentioned it a couple of times, but I really want to make sure we pay attention to it here. Because as we come to the conclusion, because Paul starts with the word finally. He's starting to land the plane now. And it's coming in, and he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. In this chapter, Paul merges that theme of joy. In other words, joy. And joy, we might think immediately, oh, that's something when I'm, I'm really glad when things are going well for me. I'm really happy in that moment. That's not joy. You see, we oftentimes associate it with circumstances. Happiness is when circumstances are going well. 
Happiness for all of us will come and it will go depending on the circumstances we're in. God wired us with those types of emotions. But joy is something far deeper. Joy is rooted in something so much more. Let's think of it like this. Have you ever gone by a stand of trees and you look out in a field and maybe this is where you're going to go to get your Christmas tree this year. They look like they're in the best spot they could possibly be. In fact, the trees are even green right now. And, and so you go, this has got to be a great spot. It looks like the soil's good. looks like it's a nice spot to get a Christmas tree. And you go in there and you start touching the first tree. And it's been a, somewhat of a dry summer uh, late, late into the fall here. And you touch it and all of a sudden the needles just fall off like crazy. And you go, how in the world could this tree not be thriving in these circumstances? There's no wind. It seems like a good protected spot. The temperatures are moderate there. And you wonder how it could possibly not be thriving. Well, the dryness in that spot. That tree, because it's always had what it needed, really hasn't put out its roots all that deeply. Joy is different though. Because after you've seen that tree, you drive about a mile down and you look up on one of those rocky uh, cliffs and you see one of those trees that's just hanging on. And you go, how in the world is that thing growing into those rocks? What is going on? What in the world is happening here? And so those roots are going in and that tree is green and it's thriving, but it's in conditions that are horrible. The wind's blowing. And is there any moisture getting to that tree? Well, the truth is the adverse conditions have caused that tree to put its roots way down into the rock. And it's grabbing onto something that's so much more solid and its root system is so much further than the other tree. That's what joy is like. It's holding on to something deeper and that rock is God's character. Joy is clinging on to that even in the most adverse of conditions. Joy is what can cause the believer to thrive. And you and I are invited, if we're in Christ, if we're followers of Jesus, we're invited into a life of joy like that. Where we're not driven by the circumstances that go up and down, but a rock-solid grip. You know, as you look around in life, and even in the church, though, uh, if we're honest, it's kind of hard to be satisfied in life. A lot of us are not satisfied with things going on around us. And so what we end up doing is we grab at things because we're not grabbing onto the rock. We grab at things hoping that those things will provide for us what we need. Paul himself has found a satisfaction and he's left behind this old life where he was grabbing at all types of different things. And he said, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That personal aspect of he, he knows Jesus in a deep and intimate way. And so Pat, uh, Matt did a great job last week of helping us see Paul's desire to know this Christ. And so this very fact that Paul writes this and wants to encourage the church in pressing on tells me something about ourselves. That we could have a tendency to be looking to other things to provide a satisfaction and a depth in our life when we could have it in Christ. You see, here's how it gets played out for us many times. Oh, good. I've trusted Jesus to save me from my sins. I'm going to heaven. I'm not going to hell. And then our lines stop right there. 
That's about as far as we've gone with Jesus is wanting salvation from him, almost treating him like this little vending machine of I got that reward. And that's a great gift to the Christian is salvation, the reward of heaven and not going to hell. But Paul emerges something that I think we could describe as this, a sanctified dissatisfaction. What I mean by that is he's not satisfied to start and just stop. He wants to press on to know Christ in a very deep way. We might turn to all kinds of cheap substitutes, though, instead of that relationship with the Lord. The things that we never left behind or that we turned back to. Maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse. Maybe it's our job. Maybe it's food. Yes, even turkey. Sports, working out, control, whatever it might be. But we turn back to those cheap substitutes. We might look to something, even the things that this week we will give thanks to the Lord for, sometimes are the cheap substitutes for actually knowing Christ and finding deep satisfaction in him. What do I mean by that? Well, if we're looking to a thing or a person to provide what God should and can be providing for us in Christ, then we've misused that thing. But not all of those things are wrong but in their proper place, those things should be drawing us to put our attention on Christ and thank Christ for who he is. And, and it should be putting our focus there. So Paul is describing his satisfaction in Christ. He has this deep and personal, soul-satisfying, intimate relationship with Christ that he's aiming at in his life. In this section we're going to look at, Paul gives a pep talk to the Philippian church. So let's read his pep talk today. In Philippians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 12. We're going to go through chapter 4, verse 1. Verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal it also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained." Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Verse 20. But our citizenship, church, is in heaven. And from it, we wait await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body and be like his glorious body. That's the power of the resurrection in us. By the power that enables him to even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. See, in this, Paul's desire to know Christ you should catch that over and over again. See, this passage is all about spiritual growth. And Paul uses all these action-oriented words. Uh, 
can we put that slide up that has a bunch of yellow words on it? See all these action-oriented words? It's a small, I know. But every one of those yellow spots, action-oriented words, press on, straining forward, keeping our eyes, join in imitating, walk, all these ideas of I strive forward. See, Paul's goal is to know Christ. It's his life goal. Now that he's met Christ, he wants to know Christ in a depth, in an intimacy. And he's not laying back, hoping it just falls in his lap. He's pressing forward. He's pursuing Jesus. He believes that Christ is better than life itself or any sort of temporary satisfaction that he could get. Do you have any shows that you like to watch and you, you just kind of get caught into them? Okay, so there's this show, and, and you can judge me, all right? There's this show I've been watching. It's called Ultimate Alaskan Survivor. It's one of those, those uh, National Geographic shows, and they go out and they have to make it from point A to point B and make it through the wilderness. I love watching it. And at the beginning on season one, there's this mountain man that they interview, and he just says a couple lines. They, he goes, well, why do you test yourself? And he says, because you can. Why do you climb mountains? Because it's there. And then he says, if you have to ask the question, you'll never understand the answer. I was like, yeah, that, you, you nailed it. Why put effort into knowing Christ? Because you can have all that he offers to you. And if you have to ask the question, why put effort into it? Well, you're not going to understand the answer yet. But I believe God wants to show us why that's so valuable. Mountain man, he, he just said, you're never going to understand it. I'm going to tell you, you can understand it. But right now, you may not understand the answer unless you go, yeah, I want Christ first. Christ can be known. He can be understood. He can be the joy of your life. And so we bank everything on him, but sometimes we have put so little effort into knowing him. Paul has the right goal in life, this goal of delighting in Christ, to know him. Paul talks in these terms that Christ has laid hold of him. And therefore, Paul, what he's doing is he's laying hold of Christ. Christ has reached out to Paul, so Paul's reaching up. And he's going to lay hold of Christ himself. He wants to know Christ. Well, knowing Christ, though, has to begin on good footing. Never step on ice or slick mud, and out you go, right down. Here's some slick mud for us to get on. If we are to strive to know Christ in order to earn favor with God or righteousness or earn heaven in some way, that is slick ground. You'll fall right down. It's not good footing. But Paul is looking at this from a different angle, a different footing. And this footing is this. He starts with what Christ has already done for him. Let me explain what I mean. Look back in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3, what Matt looked at last week. Verses 8 and 9 say this. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Oh, he desires Christ. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. Literally, he's saying, they're dung. I flush them away. They're gone. I count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What Paul is talking about here is this footing where he's describing through the cross what Christ has won for him. 
Matt introduced us to a term that we use in, theologians use, and we can use in church called imputed righteousness. In other words, that Christ grants, God grants to us through Christ, the righteousness of Christ. He counts it as ours. So though you are not perfected, you are, how many of you are righteous today? Like you came in, you go, oh yeah, I've got it. Good. Don't raise your hand right now. It'd be a bad time to raise your hand. You, because we're not. But in Christ, he counts us as righteous. He applies Christ's righteousness to us. So when the father looks at us, he sees Christ's righteousness. Think of all the things that Christ won for us. A justification, a forgiveness, being saved from, from hell unto heaven, being healed, the completeness. We could make this list go on, being purchased. What Paul is describing though is he doesn't just want those things down the road He wants to see redemption filter down into his life now. I strive to know Jesus. I want to see all of that in me. The righteousness of Christ. Now, God, start doing salvation now in me. Redeem me today. So as we come to verse 12 in today's text, it starts with this verse. Not that I have already obtained this, which is a, what, a pronoun? Right? So what is that referring to? Not that I've obtained this or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What's he after here? It's this. He's been seen now by God as perfect, but he wants to see God do that work of building a righteousness in him. There are so many pieces of what we will be that God begins to do in us in the walk with Christ. And that's what Paul is getting at here. He wants to live in redemption now. He wants the life of the Spirit to bring resurrection to him. Think of all these things that were described in verse 10. All these areas where he says he can know Christ. In the power of his resurrection. What did Christ win for us in the resurrection? Well, a bunch of things. Victory in, in our walk with the Lord. Victory over sin. Being able to move forward in that. Also, he referenced one. This idea of, our, in verse 21, our, our lowly bodies would be one day made into a glorious body. Your body wasting away, mine is. But one day they will be resurrected into a glorious body. That's the power of the resurrection. It's one of the things he wants to see, not just in the future, but now, God, do this victory life in me now. This idea of, of becoming like him in in, in, in may, may share in his sufferings. That idea that his sufferings are actually an invitation into having fellowship with Christ. That I can lean into suffering in a way where I'm going to meet Jesus in that. Becoming like him in death. What did his death win? Well, salvation. But how about a salvation now and walking in grace and forgiveness and that ability to apply that in relationships and in life now. And so... Paul presses towards knowing Christ. It's his passion. It's his life mission. And he gives us a couple of things in this that will help us when we think about how do I know Christ? Is that your life goal today? I want to know Christ. And so one of the things that he does is he confronts an issue that we might have that we subconsciously might think. But I don't want to admit that I think this, but I do it sometimes. That a relationship with Christ and a depth with Christ is just going to fall in my lap. And so Paul uses this term two times that he presses on. Pressing on is not a sitting back. It's an action. 
he has this sanctified dissatisfaction with where he's at currently because he knows there's more to know of Christ, both in relationship and in the relationship affecting Paul's life. So two times he says, I press on. It's a great term. It's an athletic term. This idea of pressing on is a straining toward a goal. It's a running term. Pressing on like I'm running towards a goal, straight ahead towards the finish line, with every ounce of effort possible being thrown into this race. So Paul talks about this idea of pressing on. I'm going to come down here because I'm going to do something. When we press on, I wonder if sometimes in our walk with Jesus, we started with a repentance. Understanding the power of the cross, we trusted Christ, and that was like taking two steps in the race. We kind of stopped, looked around, grabbed a seat since then. We really haven't pressed forward in knowing Christ. And Paul talks about that possibility being something that goes on. But in verse 13, he says, there's one focus of his life. Look at verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. In other words, he hasn't fully attained all of this in his life, all there is to have in Christ. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward forward to what lies ahead. See, Paul is pressing forward with this one thing. His one goal in life is to know Jesus. He strains with everything he has. He has this specialization in his life of knowing Jesus. This is his goal. He wants to know the power of Jesus in his resurrection right there in that house prison where he's writing this from. And in order to press on, he he describes it further in verse 13 about the idea of not looking back. He's not going to look back as he runs forward. So let's think about this by doing something. I'm going to run a little bit, and you're going to get to participate. When we run a race, you think of different ways we might run a race. Paul is calling us to move forward. And so we run with our eyes open, and we press forward. And let's pretend this is coming to know Christ right down the aisle here. And we run forward, pressing to know him. Now, I brought along with me something brought my trusty backpack that's been all over the U.S. and in a couple of different countries. It's been on many miles in the woods. It's carried a lot of hunting gear over the years. In fact, so much hunting gear and so much um, gunpowder has been on it, I often get caught in the airport with this thing. And so this backpack has been with me a long time. If I'm hiking along and the backpack is weighted down, eventually you start to get tired of carrying it. Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I was out hunting and, and... there was a point where we were running along trying to get up ahead of some elk and curve up around them. And as we were doing it, I was carrying the backpack and the backpack was getting heavy and it was starting to bounce on my back. And it was like, this isn't working the way it's supposed to. It was slowing me down as I ran. And so you get the idea that a backpack is heavy and it can stop us sometimes. I want to do something here and I'm going to first run the race as if I don't have the backpack on. But I want to show you something. Now, some active participants. I'm lucky because there aren't very many of you in this section. Will you help me though, Julie? Okay. Julie's going to stick her foot out to try to trip me. Jen, will you also? And Craig. Okay, don't let me go down hardcore. 
but I might go down. So this is revenge for them for that sermon I preached too long a couple weeks ago, right? So I'm going to run, and I'm going to try to look backwards as I'm running, and I'm going to see how well I can do. You can trip me. It's okay. Julie's not sure because she works at the church, and she's not sure how this is going to go if if it goes bad here. All right, ready? I'm going to look backwards, and you guys are going to try to trip me. See, I don't really trust you. I know something's coming. Okay, so I'm looking forward. I'm trying to trying to look down, and part of my problem is because I'm running, I don't. I'm losing direction, and I easily could have veered off. The chairs helped me a little bit, and I knew some obstacles were coming, but I really didn't know when they were going to come, and it really slowed me down moving through there. That's what Paul is saying. When we're looking back, you just can't move forward. Many of us are running that race with a backpack, the obstacles of life in front of us, and that backpack could be many things. That backpack could be our upbringing. It could be a broken relationship. It could be sin that is in our life. It could be a whole host of different things. Maybe you, there's some ministry failure you had along the way. Maybe there's somewhere where there's a regret that you're carrying in life. Paul is not saying, just press on. Don't pay attention to the backpack. In moving forward and not looking back, Paul is saying, yeah, you would need to take that off. Take that backpack off. If this represents sin, it's coming before Jesus in repentance and saying, I've got to stop. I'm going to drop that thing so that I can move forward. Remember what the author of Hebrews said? Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Just throw it off. And let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Perfectly draws out that picture. Maybe there's a relationship that's broken that's weighing you down. Forgiveness, moving forward in the place of, of biblically dealing with that conflict and then forgiveness in order to move forward is laying down the backpack. And once it's down, you can press forward and you don't need to keep looking back at that thing. Leave it behind you and move on. Shame, guilt, don't need to be your friend as you move forward. You look at the cross and you follow Jesus. Now, let's do this again. And this time I get to look forward. Okay, so feet out. And as we go along, I can look at Jesus at the other end. And I can press forward. And I can go right around all their feet. And I can move. Because I'm looking at Jesus. And I can at the same time see what's going on in life. And Paul is saying we look forward. We press on to the goal. Sometimes we're also looking back in a different way. We're looking back to what once was, our successes. We're riding on what once was. Maybe a season of great ministry success. Maybe a season of, of life that was just full of joy for you. 
Maybe it's a place where as you were moving forward, you just had this close abiding relationship with Christ. And today you're still writing on what once was a nostalgia. Jesus invites us with a call of come, come to me, to know him in a deep, intimate, and personal way. So Paul is saying here about all of this, it's not that I've arrived in my Christian life. I don't want to look back on my previous experience, but rather I keep moving forward and pressing towards the goal of Christian maturity, of knowing Jesus. In order to do that and move forward, you have to first be convinced that Jesus is worth more than where you were or currently are. Are you convinced of that? That the value of Christ, that the offer of of knowing him is far more than what you currently have? And then from there, to strain and to strive and to work may involve reprioritizing and seeking and digging in and changing things so that you can find him. I press on, I let go, and I move forward. He's already laid hold of you. We sang about that this morning. When the night is holding on, God is holding on. He made the first move, and he invites you to reach back. Even in this Christmas season would be a great time to do that. But Paul puts out one, another way of knowing God. It's the realization that I can't walk forward alone. The Lone Ranger is usually the one who gets picked off. So Paul helps us see that another means of moving forward is we need to find good examples. Look at what he says in verses 17 through 19. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction, and their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, and their minds with minds set on earthly things. There are obviously some bad examples that Paul is trying to help the Philippians notice that they shouldn't model their life after. They shouldn't follow. They shouldn't pursue. Who are they? Well, we don't really know. They could be a number of different things. It could be the Judaizers that Matt brought up last week. These people who, who did not see how Christ was the fulfillment of the law and instead tried to make Gentiles take on Jewish practices. They may have been other false teachers teaching other things that were incorrect. I think they were simply unbelievers. But we don't fully know. The reason I say that is Paul says that their end is their destruction. And he says that there are many of them. Sometimes there are people in the church, outside of the church, who are not a good example for us to be following. Who is a good example? How do I know? Well, when you know Christ and you keep looking at Christ, you'll be able to see it. Is is he in people? Do I notice that? Do they have a walk with Jesus? The more you know Christ, the better you're going to be able to see those examples. And the better you see those examples, the more that's going to press you to know Christ. And so we can discern that. It takes some understanding of that. There are people who live in life, notice this, with their satisfaction being found in in their bellies and in the pleasures of life and in all kinds of things. Pleasures of the body, enjoying sinful, shameful things. And we too sometimes buy the lie in that. And so 
Christ came to redeem us from that, but being careful to pay attention to who we're following. Calvin Coolidge was one of our presidents. He invited people from his hometown to come to the White House uh, for a visit. And they were honored. And so these people from a small rural town decided to come to the White House, but they are very out of place as they come to the White House. So they talked ahead of time uh, about how to function in this high-class uh, building. What do we do? And they came to the determination that the best thing was to just watch what the president did. And so when, when coffee came out, and it was time to drink some coffee, uh, Coolidge took one of a saucer, took it out. They filled it with coffee. He went over and he put milk, and then he put some sugar into it, stirred it up, and so did everybody else. And they thought the next step was going to be drink it. Pinky out, right? Saucer. And so they thought he was going to drink it. Well, Coolidge took the teacup and he put it down for the cat. None of them knew what to do all of a sudden. Coolidge is probably not a bad example for us, but here's the point I'm trying to make. One, don't feed cats. But two, <laughs> but two is this. Be careful what you're following and even who you're following and what actions you're following out of them and their practices. But there's Paul, who is the good example, and he tells them that they can follow or imitate him. We need good examples, don't we? People who sharpen us, who help us move towards Jesus, who put Jesus at the center of their life and help us have Jesus at the center of our life. And I see a couple of things about Paul right in these verses. One of those is this. Why he's a good example? One is his humility. Did you catch his humility in this? He's not putting himself up above other people or acting as if he's perfect or he's attained everything in Christ. He's, he put himself on equal footing with everybody else. And that's so appealing. I can follow a guy like Paul. I go, yeah, you're a good example. Here's another thing about Paul. I notice his compassion. Uh, did you catch how he talked about unbelievers? It's even with tears that he tells them about people who walk as enemies of the cross. Paul doesn't look at unbelievers and he's, he isn't raging and angry at them. His response is with compassion. He wants them to know Jesus. What a different response that is sometimes from our response when we look at people who don't know Jesus. He wants them to know that. And he has compassion. He also has a love for the church. A deep heart for them. What Have you noticed the term that he uses almost every time he addresses the Philippian church throughout this book? Does anybody know what it was? It's a family term family relationship, what was it? Brothers, okay? All throughout the book, he's been calling them brothers. That's why in church, sometimes if you're new to church, sometimes we'll call each other brother or sister. I know it's kind of weird, but it's just, it's, it's talking about this close relationship. Like we're family together. And so Paul is describing his heart for the church there, this close relationship they have. And then did you notice in verse one of chapter four, all these words that are so close, I, people that he loves, his joy, they're his crown, they're his beloved. Paul has a love for the church. That also tells me he's a good example. And we need good examples in our life, people who will disciple us and spur us towards knowing Jesus. Do you have that? Right here in this room are some people that would be good for you to look up to, to imitate, 
to, to say, how are you following Jesus? Teach me what this looks like. For me, there's some in this room, uh, elders at River of Life are a group of guys that are not just friends and, and co-laborers with me, but they help disciple me. My dad is one. But there are seasons of life that change. If I held on to just people I had in the past in my life, I wouldn't have anybody like that because times have changed. I've moved here now and I need people currently where I'm at. And you do too. You need to let those seasons as things move, find new people who will invest in you. Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In other words, Church, it's not about the person being on display. It's simply about this person saying, hey, look, let's go this way. Look at the cross. Pay attention to the cross. That's what the example should do. They should point you to Jesus. Imitate me as I imitate and and move towards Christ. As I follow the example of Christ. There was a nine-year-old boy who got a gift in the mail from his aunt. He opened up the package and inside of it was a model of an airplane one of those put together models. He opened it up and he, he thought, awesome, there's an a airplane inside of this. And so he opened the box and went, oh, it's in pieces. He didn't realize the model had to be put together, glued together, painted, decals put on, and it was gonna take a bunch of work. And it looked complicated. How would he put it together by hand? And then furthering his confusion of what to do, he remembered his dad's out of town and his dad would have helped him put together that model airplane. And so he thought for a second, well, what would dad do if he were helping me? And something is different with his dad than my fathering, but he thought my dad would look at the instructions. (laughs) On a model, I would, okay? But my dad would look at the instructions. And if you follow the instructions, they will help put that thing together. And so he did. He followed the instructions. And by the time his dad got home, he had put together a beautiful airplane that looked really awesome. And he showed it to his dad when he arrived home. And his dad was, was proud of his son. And he praised him for all the ways that he had, he had thought about how to do it and putting his mind to it and, and leaning into it. We need examples to follow that will take us to the instructions that will lead us to Jesus. Here are your instructions. We need people who walk in the word, who know Jesus, who help us find Jesus through this. It's the same way for us. And Paul is saying you can, you can do that. And he would lay as an example. And that's how, one of the ways that you will, you will know Jesus. But Paul brings us to one last one. And this, this other example is one of how to have sure footing and one of the ways it's played out in real life of knowing Jesus, this last one is remembering your citizenship. Look at verses 19 and 20. He's, we're overlapping a bit with that last section. And he's talking about those who don't know Jesus. And he says their end is destruction and their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. The longer you would live in a foreign country, the more you would become like those in the country. At our church, we have two gals who work at the church who are from another country. Julie, do I have permission? Okay. 
I, this was spontaneous in first service. I just used your name and Ketty's name. So Julie Ficken is our administrator. She's from England. And Ketty Vanderveld is our children's ministry director. And she's from Israel. Both of these gals have taken on American ways of doing things, but not everything. We're trying to indoctrinate them in using our real way of speaking, but it hasn't yet <laughs> fully taken effect. But the more you live in a country, whether I was somewhere else or you, or they come here, you begin to take it on, right? If I went somewhere, I'd take on the language. I would take on food and customs and traditions and some of the holidays and ways of doing things because it's only natural to start to fit into a place. Some things in a culture are just fine to take on. No problem with taking on language, right? But what if I moved to a culture where lying was the norm? Is that okay for me to take on? No, because it's not the, it's a fallen part of the culture there. And so Paul is reminding us that you don't fit in fully on earth. As a Christian, we're called to remember that earth is not our home, that you have a passport, that the home, home country has now changed. Your passport is no longer just simply the United States of America. Your passport is heaven. We live as strangers and aliens in this land. This isn't where I belong. I'm literally not of this world. That's why Peter said, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, or in other words, aliens, foreign aliens, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans or the people that inhabit the area, this earth, Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, don't get too comfortable here. Don't become just like everything around you. Your citizenship is in heaven. Christ is going to return. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain said, Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant inns, but will not encourage us to make them for home. So think about the future. He's coming. This is only temporary. Have you forgotten and become a little too comfortable with here? If we live for the future, if we're ready to die and we look for the future, it will change everything about the now. There was a gal who was diagnosed with cancer and told she only had three months left to live. And so the doctor told her she needed to go ahead and, and get things in order. And so one of the things she did was called her pastor who came over to her house to discuss different things about a uh, funeral service and, and some of her wishes after she passed away. And so the pastor jotted down songs she wanted sung, scriptures she wanted written, uh, what she wanted to be wearing. She, he wrote down her favorite Bible verse and everything was laid out. And as he was leaving, she said, oh, hold on a second. Wait, wait, wait. There's one last thing that I forgot to tell you. And she said, this is really important. And she looked at him and she goes, I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. And he looked at her, just confused, not sure what she meant by that. And she goes, that shocks you, doesn't it? And he said, well, to be honest, I am quite puzzled by your request here. And so she went on to explain, well, in all my years of attending church socials and functions where food was involved, let's be honest, food is an important part of, of a church event, spiritual or otherwise. She said, my friend, my, my favorite part was when they would clear away the dishes and someone would lean over and say, you can keep your fork. 
It was my favorite part because I always knew that something better was coming. When they told me to keep my fork, I always knew that something great was on its way. It wasn't going to be jello or pudding. It was going to be cake or pie or some good dessert that was coming my way. And when people see me in my casket with a fork in my hand, I want them to wonder, what in the world is the fork for? And I want you to tell them something better is coming. So keep your fork. Paul told us that our citizenship is not on earth. It's in heaven above. That there's something better awaiting us. John wrote that the new heavens and new earth, that Jesus would bring those with him. So we can praise God because Jesus is our hope and our glory. So Paul finishes this with verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for. If you switch over to the message up on the screen, he says, you make me feel such joy. You fill me with such pride as I look at you. Just like Christ would look at them. And he says, don't waver. Stay on track. Steady with God. His encouragement is focus on Jesus and don't move from this knowing Jesus don't be satisfied with looking back or, or trying or not trying in your life, sorry. Don't be satisfied with following bad examples. Don't live for the temporary and get too comfortable here. Make the exchange and pursue Christ. Remember, Jesus calls us to himself in such a gentle way. He says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy burdened. Looking for satisfaction, looking for what Jesus can provide in other places will always leave you burdened. You don't believe me? You'll be back in a couple of years going, yep, it's true. Jesus told us, whoever drinks of the water I give him though will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There's an invitation from Jesus that shows his character where our joy can be found. That kindness, that gentleness, that love, that call back. Come know me. And that's the call he's saying to you today. And would you pursue me with everything you have? What does that mean for you as you go through the next few weeks? What does that mean for you as you go through your life Maybe it's the reminder again. Or maybe it's, I need to reprioritize some things in my life. Let's bow our heads. And Father, as a church body, we do want that one goal like Paul had of knowing you to be a driving motive, a driving passion, the thing that pushes us forward. Jesus, help us to not be, find satisfaction in, or look to satisf- find fat satisfaction in things that are things we were to leave behind, but simply to look ahead to the cross and to look ahead to all that you can, will give us in our, our salvation. And so Jesus, we want to reach out to those things and in the same way you reach to us, we're reaching towards you and finding that connection. Lord, you are so good to us. You, are, you, you showed such love to us on the cross. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. And so, Lord, with that and remembering that, we press in towards you. Lord, we want to worship you. 
And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.